This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books and Biography, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Chrisa Pugh of Harvard University. Today, my guest is Dr. Matthew Wilson, who's an assistant professor of architecture at Ball State University, where he teaches history of architecture and architectural design. Dr. Wilson is the author of Richard Congreve, Positive Politics, and the Victorian Press, and the British Empire which is published by Palgrave Macmillan in late 2021, and which we'll be discussing today. In the biography, Dr. Wilson explores the life of Richard Congreve, who, as we'll learn, was a British positivist philosopher, a minister and founder of the Church of Humanity, an Oxford Don, a staunch anti-imperialist, and later in life, a physician. Dr. Wilson's biography surveys Congreve's professional and academic contributions to the new science of sociology, as well as provides insights into his personal trajectory and commitments, which shaped his evolution as a thinker and an advocate. Dr. Wilson, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Um, I'm wondering if you could start by just telling me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write a biography of Richard Congreve. As I mentioned um, in the intro, you're a professor in a department of architecture, so I'm really curious how you found yourself writing um, a biography about a 19th century British philosopher. Hmm. Well, thank you for having me. Um, That's a really good question. Uh, It may take me just a tad bit to um, sort of unfold that question. Uh, So I began my training in architecture, um, and I had a really great group of instructors during my undergraduate. um, And they exposed me to kind of various ways of thinking um, about design and especially about the built environment. Um, And so for the most part, um, the emphasis was very much about um, concepts, um, how ideas drive the design process, and how to embed um, your design with meaning. Um, So many of my professors, they were very interested in regionalism, um, and they referred often to thinkers like Lewis Mumford, um, Patrick Geddes, and the like. Um, And so I was also very interested in the ways in which architecture can project power um, and shapes and reflects uh, who we are. Um, So I had um, three really outstanding history professors, um, and the history of architecture in context, historical context, the game. Uh, very important to me. So many of my instructors, they talked about psychology of place. They talked about um, ecological relationship of buildings to the larger city and uh, region. Um, And as I began to search for graduate level programs, 
I became interested in sociology, um, in equity and regenerative design, regionalism and post-industrialization. Um, so scholarship at that time during the uh, mid 2000s uh, was speaking a lot about how architecture uh, uh, is less important to organizing cities than landscape. Um, so um, they were talking about how they were shrinking cities such as Detroit and the landscape rather than architecture was beginning to organize them essentially. So at the same time, um, there were these rapidly developing cities like Dubai. Um, and um, these were strictly kind of uh, developer oriented perspective types of projects that I was looking at um, that didn't have a lot of community um, uh, functions or you could say institutions um, within them. Um, and so after working a few years, I got rid of just about everything I owned. Uh, I was living in San Antonio, working professionally as an architect. Um, and I took out an immense amount of student debt and I moved to London to attend the Architectural Association. Um, and the Landscape Urbanism is the program that I enrolled in. And they were thinking in new ways about cities, specifically about how landscape orients or organizes um, cities rather than architecture. So scholarship on landscape urbanism by Charles Waldheim um, and others, they pointed to people I had been reading as an undergraduate. So the works of Ian McCarg, Patrick Geddes, Lewis Mumford, um, people who were kind of somewhere in between, you know, um, architecture and planning and sociology. So I was also reading people like Jane Jacobs, Edward Soha, David Pender, um, Felix Quittati, um, David Harvey, that sort of line of thinkers. Um, and McCarg's work, uh, spoke of Gettys as an influence to him. And Waldheim um, wrote that they were both, uh, both Gettys and McCarg were significant to the foundations of landscape urbanism. So Gettys' work was really rather curious to me. Um, I read a lot of biographies about him um, and I also read Gettys' writing. And I wanted to know more about where his ideas about cities came from, um, about where his ideas about regions came from as well. Um, and so uh, Geddes and, and Mumford and Patrick Abercrombie, they all spoke of Colt and Frederick Laplay as these sort of uh, founders of a French school of town planning and sociology. Um, so um, Geddes for a while was uh, credited as being central to the foundations of British sociology. So he discussed utopia spelled with an E-U, uh, T-O-P-I-A, uh, meaning an ideal or real place. Um, and throughout my childhood, I had been very interested in reading as a sort of pastime utopias and dystopias. I read uh, people like Edward Bellamy and George Orwell, William Morris, H.G. Um, Wells and, and the like. Um, and I became interested in, in having a, doing an academic career um, and writing books. Um, and so I began to pursue a PhD I contacted a kind of leading scholar on utopias named Gregory Claves, um, who was teaching at the University of London. And I just said, I wanna do a, a book on the um, history of sociology and town planning and political thought and the interconnections between these things. So we met a number of times at a cafe in London. Um, and then we walked down the street to the history of political ideas seminar at the Senate House Library during the late 2000s or so. Um, 
And I told him I was interested in this academic career in publishing books, and he kind of helped me to flesh out my approach to connecting Gettys to Colt, August Colt, the sort of founding figure, you could say, of, of sociology. So in about 2010, I enrolled in the history department at the University of London. And um, during my training as an architectural, uh, as a historian rather, uh, I was invited to, to teach architectural history classes at Ball State in 2014. Um, so that's sort of, in a nutshell, my, my kind of background. But during the, the process of being a sort of adjunct instructor, and then I moved back to the UK and I taught there for a year. Um, and then I came back to Ball State as a tenure line faculty. And part of that, you have to commit to publishing. Um, and so I published my first book in 2018 um, called Moralizing Space, The Utopian Urbanism of the British Positivists. And that connects um, Quant to um, a collection of uh, thinkers in what I call the, the sort of foundations of British sociology. Um, so that was my first book in 2018. And Congreve was a part of the, the you know, a chapter of that book. And um, throughout my PhD dissertation, my advisor, Gregory Clays, was encouraging me to simply write um, a Congreve biography. So after I finished with the first book, um, and I felt I kind of necessarily had to write about architecture and urbanism um, as part of being an architecture department and, and that sort of thing. Um, but after I finished that, then I moved on to doing the Congress biography. Great, that's um, super interesting. Thank you so much for taking us along that journey with you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm really interested in in your process, um, you know, and and just the process of kind of writing biography. Um, it sounds like you've had this idea, you know, in your mind for quite a while um, since you were in graduate school. And so I'm really curious about, um, you know, if you could describe your you know your research and your writing process. Like, what kinds of um, sources were you consulting? Um, you know, how long did it take you? to develop this project, um, you know, and what were some of the obstacles um, or challenges that you encountered as you were either doing this research um, for the book or actually writing it? Um, and, and, and how did your, your thinking about the, the book change as, as you were writing over the years? Mm, uh, it's a very good question. Um, so as I mentioned, um, you know, I was kind of being encouraged to write the biography first and foremost. Um, and I didn't, feel quite at ease with Congreve as a person, and I, I probably still don't, um, to be honest. But um, I, I kind of had begun the course of simply, um, while I was doing my research on all of these other figures, as well as Congreve, I began to, as a process, um, chart out um, a kind of chronological list of events um, and things like that associated with um, the people's lives that I was researching. Um, and so, you know, that was part of it. Um, and I also went about reading their, the, you know, the primary sources on them, reading the biographies of um, Frederick Harrison, for instance, um, Mary Pickering's wonderful uh, three-volume August Comte, an intellectual biography, is kind of uh, one of the first books that I read. I also read the really wonderful book by T.R. Wright called The Religion of Humanity, The Impact of Kantian Positivism in, in Britain. And um, that one really kind of opened the, the door, you could say, to the world of, of Kantian Positivism for me in terms of 
understanding that it was something that it was a bit different than what we usually associate with the word positivism. Um, so reading biographies, uh, that was a big sort of part of it. Um, and it just sort of framed the way I was, you know, thinking about that, you know, these are human beings um, and I want to know kind of what they were about and how some of their activities um, maybe were in contradiction to some of the teachings of positivism, which I found very fascinating. I was also uh, became very fascinated in the responses or the reactions to um, the positivist movement. Um, and so when I was creating my first book, I began to sort of kind of registered with me, like, you know, this was very contentious and people said some, um, I mean, partly almost kind of amusing things um, about about this group of people. Um, and, 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 you know, you kind of have to be kind of sensitive about it. But um, and I do think that they did some courageous things in terms of stepping out um, against the British Empire. Um, but yeah, so I, I went through and I you know read primary source material, secondary source material, began to draft out the entire thing, which I had. Um, in the UK context, a PhD has to be done within four years' time. So I went in kind of knowing just about every chapter I was going to write, except for, I think, chapter number four on that one. Um, but at any rate, so I guess what I'm saying is that as I was working on moralizing space, in the back of my mind, I was also cataloging information related to a concrete biography. Um, so in that sense, um, the project has been going on since about 2009 or so. Um, and and um, so once Moralizing Space came out in 2018, I proceeded immediately to prepare a book proposal for the Congreve biography. And um, I went around once again to archives in the, the UK. Um, I spent a lot of time in Oxford and the British Library, both of which have, um, and the London School of Economics, um, all of those have um, archival material on the British positivists. Um, so, um, and there I also went and began to prepare to do conference papers. Um, and so that summer of 2019, if I recall, it was, um, I began to go around and do this kind of tour and I went and I did a planning conference in Japan and then I did a conference in Spain. Um, nothing good for the environment I did that summer. Um, in terms of travel, it was, it was too much. Um, but yeah, I, I went and I went to the archive in Paris, which is where the Maison Auguste Comte is. Um, and it consisted of a lot of photographing with my phone. So I just kind of go through boxes and boxes and boxes of material. Um, obstacles that I came across were Congreve's handwriting uh, was uh, not so great. Um, people complained about it. Um, John Bright, for instance, said, I can't read what you're writing. Um, but his handwriting really never kind of improved. Um, other things in terms of obstacles, I would say um, I part of my, my background was to read um, um, Collingwood, who is a British historian, and he always said, well, you know, biographers aren't historians. And so that was something that kind of troubled me in, in terms of my, my writing process. Um, but as I mentioned, I read a number of biographies going through um, and doing my dissertation. And I also had some inspiration by reading um, 1984 um, in terms of attempting to evoke spaces and scenes. And I also really appreciated the work of Sarah Bakewell, who had written a book about Sartre and uh, the Existentialist Cafe. So there, there were a number of kind of different uh, influences, you could say, in, in terms of the way I approached writing the book 
Um, and I was really trying to build upon Martha Vogler's um, biography of Frederick Harrison, who is Richard Congreve's um, kind of most famous follower. Um, and so one of the reasons that I wrote this book was because I noticed um, just about everyone around Congreve had a biography. Um, at the same time, I did not feel too comfortable writing a book about another white uh, Eurocentric male figure um, who was not um, always, you could say, on the right side of history. Um, and so that was a difficult thing to overcome. And I just kind of had to realize, well, you don't have to like someone to write a book about them. Um, and so that kind of helped me along my way. That's super helpful. As I mean, as someone who um, is a fellow historical researcher, I was really impressed just by the kind of like granularity with which you were able to excavate various components of Congreve's life. Like you really brought us into um, some very, you know, at times quite intense, um, you know, kind of emotional exchanges or really, um, you know, intimate conversations and exchanges that he was having with his peers and, you know, his wife. And, um, you know, it just, it really, it just like the depth of kind of personality that you were able to delve into, um, you know, from these archives that are, you know, 150 years old is just really, really incredible. I, you know, found myself asking, like, how did he find this out? Or like, how did he know that this is, you know, this is like, you know, kind of the tenor of the conversations. It was just really incredible. Um, mm -hmm. The life that you were able to breathe into, um, uh, you know, these characters. So I really appreciated that. Um, so I'm wondering if now, if, if we could actually go into the book itself a little bit, and I'd love for you, um, you know, to bring us into, um, you know, maybe the structure of the book and, you know, describe, you just mentioned, um, you know, that you really kind of had everything mapped out with maybe with the exception of chapter four. Um, but I'd love to know, um, you know, for our listeners, if you could just give a brief overview of what, um, you know, the chapters are, like what you kind of cover in each chapter. And then if you wouldn't mind, um, if you have a favorite passage um, or an illustrative passage that you'd like to read that really brings us into the book, I think that'd be really helpful. Sure thing. Um, I, I would just say, just as an aside to your, uh, your previous comments, that um, yes, I found myself going through a lot of newspaper articles. I found myself looking at weather reports. Um, I found myself looking at all of his diary entries. And he wrote a lot of um, autobiographical reflections. So that really helped me to, to really kind of breathe a story into it. Um, but in terms of the, the, the structure of the book, um, chapter one kind of starts with a prelude um, and it's, it's entitled, Who is Richard Congreve? It will be asked. Um, and that was a title of a, um, of a review of some of his first anti-imperialist writings. And it, it appeared on the 16th of January, 1858, in the Times newspaper. Um, and the reviewers, they presented Congreve as at once enigmatic, outrageous, uncommonly principled. Um, and this was an instance in which um, it, the public began speculating on how Congreve laced his polemics with meanings and motivations. Um, and that kind of affords um, you know, me and, and the reader to uh, an opportunity to examine positivism through the critical lens of the Victorian press. So the chapter delves into the historiography of positivism and the often overlooked utopia to which Congreve dedicated his life. Um, so against the backdrop of, of that, um, I examined the ways in which um, the press and Congreve together aided and impaired the impact of the positivist movement 
in on British life. Um, then from chapter on chapter number two, um, I call it things about a highly strung evangelist. Um, and it covers the period generally from around 1818 to 1838. And I talk about how around um, and about the family farm, the boarding school, the chapel, um, that the young Richard Congreve encountered conflicting social outlooks. Um, he faced um, the radical thinking of farmhands, the severe conservatism of his father, and a really rigid evangelical pedagogy um, offered to him by his uncle, Walter Burry, at a French boarding school, which is where he becomes a kind of Francophile. Then later, I carry on into his life at rugby in Oxford, and he's kind of socially awkward. He's a poet historian um, sort of figure, and he embraced the idealism of, of Shelley. He absorbs the Christian duties of S.T. Coleridge, and he begins to reflect on Robert Owen's socialist utopias. Um, and also during that time, he becomes under the immense influence of the broad church thinker Thomas Arnold. So there are these conflicting different types of encounters he has, and that begins to shape his um, adolescent persona, which is the unbending evangelical, which is something he kind of refers to himself as. So um, it looks at the at Congress study of history, of utopias, Christian virtue, and um, how the past experience of life could uh, light a way to a new and brighter future. Um, then in chapter three, um, I call that once timorous, now a very dangerous infidel. And that covers the late 1830s through to about 1845. And the late 1830s um, were years of severe sadness and new friendships and intensive study for Congress. Um, within a decade's time, people considered him when he was then at the time an Anglican minister, a very dangerous man. Um, so um, the chapter argues that central to his persona was his very keen enthusiasm for what he called the combative element at Oxford Union Society debates. So uh, here, among other places, he engaged in very difficult conversations on public education, chartism, home rule, social reform, and tractarianism. And um, he, he takes on this sort of uh, uh, continental, socially conscious teachings um, as an Oxford coach or a, a tutor of sorts. Um, and he was quite popular among undergraduates, um, but there were rumors of him, you know, creating these secret uh, uh, newspaper articles and pamphlets. Um, and that left his peers and his pupils very suspicious of the extent to which he had lost his religion um, and he was a political infidel. So he encounters during this chapter as we see controversy after controversy that left him for uh, searching for a way out of Oxford. And that mostly related to um, uh, during the time uh, the Oxford movement. And there was a lot of scrutiny about people's religious teaching and, and talking at Oxford. And so that's why he's kind of looking for a way out. Then in chapter number four, um, it's called A Man of Fiery Temperament. Um, and these are, you know, the, a lot of the titles have, uh, they're kind of in quotes, and these are things that people said about him or things that he said. Um, and this is something someone said about him, a man of fiery temperament. Um, so he experienced this period of great inner turmoil um, during his tenure at rugby school. He goes uh, and he's hired at rugby school, which is somewhere he attended as, as, a, as a child. 
Um, and um, he discovers uh, that for various reasons, he's, a, he's not, really not a welcome person at rugby. And so he begins to immerse himself into the works of Thomas Carlyle, G.H. Uh, Luz, uh, J.S. Mill, and finally Auguste Comte. Um, and so their ideas, they informed his very fiery utterances on free trade, on elections, on revolution, on autocracy. Um, and the headmaster at rugby school, he pushed Congreve out of his post. Um, um, and so by this time, Congreve was an ordained minister and a kind of liberal pamphleteer. Um, and he received a warm welcome back at Oxford, at Wadham College, where he went as a, um, as a graduate. So by the time that Congreve's prophecies um, attracted a kind of small group of disciples there at Wadham, he had dedicated himself to the study of positivism. So the chapter essentially argues that based off of critiques surrounding the Christian church, um, he saw in positivism the true purpose and duties of the rising spiritual leaders of modernity, so to speak, which is positivists or positivism generally. Um, and then so chapter five is called a leader of a slightly terrorist school of philanthropists, which is again, a phrase that was applied to Congreve. Um, and that chapter covers about 1850, uh, early 1850 into the late 1850s. Um, and so by the mid 1850s, Congreve was really tired of the idea of attempting to reform Oxford into a modern institution, um, an institution with sound teachings for empowering British elites to drive social change. So uh, the chapter talks about this tearful crisis involving his faith and his finances and a new fiance. Um, and so Congreve abandons academia. He abandons the Anglican church for the quote unquote sake of the truth, which is positivism in his mind. So he became the first true disciple of August Comte's religion of humanity. Um, and the chapter argues that with Congreve's religious positivism um, as his guide, that he proceeds to publish um, stories or studies, histories embedded with forecasts of the demise of the British Empire. So these publications, they extended um, scientific and religious justifications of Colt's utopia um, in tandem with this new idea about foreign policies of breaking up the British Empire. So chapter number six um, is called Comtist Vicar and Accuser of the Nation, 1857 to 66. Um, and by the 1860s, Congreve had metamorphosed into a kind of polymath of various vocations. He published anti-imperialist tracts. Um, he began studying medicine. Um, he translated the religious works of Auguste Comte. And he assumed the very unsavory role of sociologist super historian, as he called himself, by writing through the lens of Comte's positivist philosophy of history. So meanwhile, Congreve also led sweeping attempts to forge an international trade union movement. Um, he and his coterie of disciples, they um, aimed to build a band of working class followers who believed their historical destiny of sorts was to realize Colt's utopia. Um, and so along these lines, they united in publishing the first composite scheme for an ideal British foreign and domestic policy called international policy in 1866. Um, so the chapter argues that all of these vocations that Congreve has during this time were rooted in, Cong in um, his self-appointed role um, as vicar of this utopian socialist church of humanity. 
Then in chapter seven, um, I entitled that one on a sort of celebrity or peculiarity of an atheistical monastery. And again, a lot of that is in quotes and those are things, terms and phrases applied to him in the British press. And uh, the period from 1867 to 1877 was one of great celebrity for Congreve. He formally met the qualification of the positivist priesthood, um, meaning he became a physician. Um, and with an aim to develop a kind of proletarian brotherhood, he developed uh, um, questions about um, suffrage reform, um, Irish, uh, the Irish question, um, anonymous journalism, the scientific and philosophical merits of positivism. People began to argue, um, like T.H. Huxley, for instance, begins to denounce positivism. Um, Congreve also engages with discussions on popular education, the Paris Commune, um, the Asante War. Um, and basically, all of these efforts, they begin to gain the support more so of the educated than the working class, which is who Congreve aspired to gain as his followers. So the chapter argues that through uh, um, these kind of middle-class alliances, um, he was able to, to found the Positivist Society of London um, and the, the school at Chapel Street Hall. He had a number of, of uh, famous followers, such as George Eliot um, and John Morley, for instance. Um, the parents of Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher, attended the chapel as well. Um, but few would really commit to what, by 1870s, uh, was an essentially defunct Church of Humanity. He had a, lot, had a lot of resistance from within to formally launch his church. And then finally, the last chapter is called Pope of Back Parlor Ambiguities and Illusions, and it covers the, the time period of 1877 to 1899. Um, and in 1877, Congress entered into this secret plot to undermine the leadership of the international positivist movement. He is uh, vying constantly in competition with Pierre Lafitte, who is the leader of the positivist um, uh, movement in Paris. He's the successor of Auguste Comte. Whenever Comte dies in 1859, Congreve continually um, is battling with Lafitte for wanting to make a church out of the positivist movement. Um, and so he enters into this plot in 1877 to undermine Lafitte. Um, and one of his co-conspirators, he exposes um, these uh, ambitions. And as such, Congreve severs all connections to the Positive Society and to a lot of his closest followers. Um, and then he relaunches his Church of Humanity. Um, but really, rather than kindling a kind of atmosphere of brotherly love, he proceeds to publish polemics in the name of humanity on crises in Eastern Europe, in China, in Zululand, in the Transvaal, Egypt and Uganda. Um, and so Congreve's co-religionists, they felt that such utterances stunted the true worship of the great being or humanity. Um, but the chapter argues that Congreve instead intended to forge this once again, proletarian church of anti-imperialism. And he expected his congregation to fully commit to a life of public duty as social reformers uh, seeking to realize um, the, cult, uh, the cultist uh, utopia. So I, I basically suggest that his polemics are religious utterances in the, uh, in the chapter. And that sort of ends up 
the, um, the, the sort of trajectory of the book. I kind of conclude with, um, you know, the ending of his life and um, his, uh, his sort of acknowledgement as being a kind of utopian thinker. Great. Thank you so much for that. And um, do you have a passage that you'd like to oh, share with us? Of course. Yes. Uh, sorry about that. Um, so I, I think I'll just start with chapter one and, and the beginning of that. So that's the kind of prelude, which is who is Richard Conger that will be asked. So on 16 January, 1858, Richard Congreve appeared on the national scene as the devil incarnate. That day, Britain's most powerful rag, the Times newspaper, brought his recent utterances to public attention. Under the direction of its greatest and most fortunate editor, John Fadius Delane, this broadsheet was a public institution. It was the calm, cautious, and conservative voice of the nation. The Times Daily Run of 60,000 prints fervently condemned Congreve's two pamphlets, Gibraltar, or the Foreign Policy of England, 1856, and India, denying England's right to retain her Indian possessions, 1857. Delane's reviewers acknowledged that they were dragging up onto the public stage for scrutiny an otherwise unknown man. Why would this organ even bother with belaboring such an obscure figure? Congreve expressed an invidious contempt for church, crown, and aristocracy. He judged these historical institutions based on a futuristic code of principles that most of the nation did not fully appreciate or recognize. The zeal with which he relayed many false prophecies about an, an incipient global order of world peace based on scientific thinking, if broadly understood, was far too much for many Victorians to stomach. Indeed, Congreve dispatched an array of full-throated commands at British statesmen. He beseeched them to either lead the West in a moral revolution or to immediately resign from their office. To him, their duties involved Britain's repentance, restitution, and disinterested moderation and the abandonment of her acquired territories. Congreve's, uh, Congreve's ideas sent even some of his closest followers reeling. One of his fair-weather friends described them as if he were shouting, gentlemen, I am an atheist, and I strongly advise you to cut your throats. At over 2,000 words long, the Times Review appeared across the British Isles under the title, Who is Richard Congreve? It will be asked. Delane's reviewers suggested that after reading Congreve's works, the British public would demand to know who was this propagandizer? Where did his ideas come from? On what grounds rested his authority to comment on the nation's foreign policy? And why should anyone acquiesce in his notion that Britain enjoyed the good fortune of landing upon the serene and blissful shore of humanitarianism abroad? The suggestions of Congreve, the mad atheist, clearly shook the nation's pride. Along a similar vein, one certain source of the Times bile was his origins and his tone. Congreve had received his education at some of England's finest of learned institutions, where he had taken away all the prizes. And prior to publishing his two recent pamphlets, the 39-year-old held high-ranking and well-regarded positions in British academia. He had served as a master at rugby school, as an Oxford don, and an Indian civil service examiner. Moreover, Congreve was an Anglican preacher, such stations in life one might associate with the characteristics of reserved introspection, patience, conservatism, and emotional reticence. Yet, 
As an Oxford student, Conger was known for being tenacious and forthright at debating religious, social, and political affairs. In association with the activities, his activities at the Decade Society and the Oxford Union, he had earned the moniker the Congreve Rocket for his combative tone and temperament. As such, not only did Congreve's dour language shock readers, but they likely wondered about the extent to which he had influenced young and impressionable minds at rugby and Oxford. His peers and pupils had once deemed him an exciting lecturer and a rising scholar, yet buried deep within dusty historical works he published prior to Gibraltar and India, one can find instances where Congreve denounces Delane's The Times as the gloomiest of war-hungry organs and a poor substitute for public discourse. Perhaps for all these reasons, the Times insinuated that Congreve's monstrous thoughts were a threat to British life. But when coming to the origin and justification of his ideas, the Times amped up the hyperbole. In an almost comical, Monty Python sort of way, it ranted, Mr. Congreve's fact is as stale as ditch water. His inference from it is new, but insane. His truths are his grandmother's. His irrational application of them is his own. Congreve was indeed making the first ever, quote unquote, new attempt, albeit an irrational one, to introduce a modern utopian foreign policy for devolving Britain's empire. His truths were expounded by a French positivist philosopher the Times cast as Congreve's grandmother. That philosopher was Auguste Comte. One facet of curiosity for the Times was Congreve's use of the term positivism. The public would surely be shaking in their shoes about this awful word it jabbed. The Oxford-educated Delane and his reviewers in the Times demanded to know its meaning, but they probably knew the term quite well. Since the mid-1830s, many British thinkers hailed Comte as the philosopher of the 19th century. The works of the great utilitarian thinker J.S. Mill, for instance, are profuse in references to Comte's scientific ideas with an aim to defeat the ontological philosophy and theology that had created obstacles to social and political reform in England. Others, such as George Grote and G.H. Lewes, based their contributions to history and philosophy on Comte's positivist conceptual frameworks. Some British Victorians had even traveled across the English Channel to meet Comte at his 10 Rue Monsieur La Pense apartment in Paris's sixth but the subject matter, the positive sciences, for which Comte was widely known for speaking on systematically from memory for hours on end, might have seemed rather innocuous. On the surface, Congreve's curt intervention into British foreign affairs thus appeared in sharp contrast to the Frenchman's heady, verbose, and detached intellectualism. Those who are unfamiliar with Comte and his acolytes might also wonder about the way in which this study uses the word positivism. Herein, I follow the example of the foremost study on British positivism, T.R. Wright's The Religion of Humanity, the Impact of Kantian Positivism in Victorian Britain. Similar to Wright, I am concerned here with the proper noun positivism written with a capital P. This is a specific reference to Kant's complete and interconnected world of ideas. As one of his followers explained, positivism is not simply a system of philosophy, nor is it simply a form of religion, nor is it simply a scheme of social regeneration. It partakes of all of these, 
and professes to harmonize them under one dominant conception that is equally philosophic and social. So positivism in this sense was a composite of centuries of religious, cultural, intellectual, and political growth based on the rise of what Kant called the positive sciences. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and that passage really does highlight um, the role of the press and really shaping our understanding, both historically and our contemporary understanding, um, of who Congreve was. So I'm wondering, and even, you know, in the title of your book, I mean, it's, you have the Victorian press. Um, and so I'm wondering um, what you feel like um, was the role of the press and really kind of helping us understand um, either in a, you know, kind of authentic way or maybe a, a misleading way who this person was and why is it that you decided um, in this biography to focus so much on the press? Um, I think that the, um, maybe the, the sort of short answer to that would be, it seems like the, the press had a, a fairly detrimental effect on his career and his livelihood. Um, but at the same time, he formed a relationship with the press in the sense that it helped to promote him. Um, so, you know, it's sort of that, that old phrase, um, you know, any kind of attention is, is good. Um, but at the same time, he was very resentful of the way he was treated in the press. Um, and I try to relay, you know, the basis and the rationale of why he was so resentful of the press. Um, basically, people were going and, and writing anonymous publications that that um, made made jokes about his beliefs. Um, and, and in that regard, I, I thought it was important to to show how vicious the Victorian press could be. Um, and uh, as I mentioned in the preface, you know, I spent a number of waking hours uh, feeling perplexed and, and slightly amused sometimes at the sort of audacity of the press. Um, and I just felt like that, that was kind of became part of who he, who he was. Um, there was one instance um, that he actually comes out and attacks the press itself um, as a kind of machine of anonymous commentary um, as a result of one of his followers, E.S. Beasley, being attacked. Um, and so I felt that, you know, because it was so much about printed matter and those were my main kind of sources, that that was a, a key reason to include, you know, those different phrases in the title. Um, positive politics, which is kind of what I feel um, he was really about, his in terms of his religious utterances, they were highly political. Um, the Victorian press, uh, thats that was his sort of um, a, a way of, of him, in a way, becoming a kind of sacrificial figure. Um, and he, he, he began to, later on in his life, avoid um, any kind of, uh, you know, paying attention to, to what the press had to say, but he did collect big scrapbooks full of, of clippings from newspapers. Um, and sometimes he would go and mark them out or make corrections to them and those sorts of things. Um, so I could tell he was very kind of ensnared by that relationship he had with the press. Um, and then the British Empire is something, you know, he was about dismantling. And so I thought that was also really important um, to, to include in the title. 
And on the cover of the book, you see his arch nemesis, um, the printing press, uh, Delane's printing press. So um, I, I, I just thought that was all together, you know, kind of the essence uh, of, of the book and an important aspect of his life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, vicious, I mean, vicious is the word. I mean, it's even until his death, I mean, after he mm. passed away, that final... Um, you know, reflection, I think it was in the times maybe, or one of the publications, mm-hmm. but it was really, I mean, just like, you know, this man has literally died and they're still um, being, you know, kind of quite, um, you know, seemingly malicious toward him and, and really mm-hmm. critical of, of his, you know, positions and um, just his life and his career. So um, that was, I think, thank you for highlighting that. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, you know, Congrev was, um, a man who wore many hats throughout his life. You know, he was um, president of the Oxford Union Society. He was a master at rugby school in Oxford Don, um, an Anglican minister, and, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, kind of went to med school, even though it doesn't seem like he really practiced. Um, and so I'm wondering, I'm really curious, um, you know, where, where do you believe Congreve left his strongest mark? whether that be in, in academia or kind of in practice in the church um, mm-hmm. or beyond. Right. Um, I, I think uh, I would wager his strongest mark um, is in the domain of political thought um, and the discourses around um, anti-imperialism. Um, you, you could say, of course, you know, he founded the Church of Humanity um, and he went through his medical training specifically to meet Kant's criteria for being a sociologist. Um, we'll, we'll have to look, think back uh, and, and realize, you know, sociology came about as a kind of set of ways of thinking about the world, but it wasn't really formally established in academia. Um, and so Kant just said, well, you, you, we're concerned with the sociological morality of, of the streets and the human body and the human mind, and therefore the best training you can receive is to become a physician. Um, and, and it seems that according to some archival uh, research that I did, that he barely scraped by in his medical training. So I wouldn't say it was there. Um, um, but I would say too that uh, he was, in terms of religion, um, you know, there's a British humanist society um, and there, there were groups um, associated with um, atheism and, and humanism and agnosticism that really kind of came about, um, you know, kind of in, in a way after, but there were, of course, precursors to, to that sort of line of thinking as well. So as far as I'm, I'm kind of concerned, I think, um, based upon my PhD advisor's uh, book, Imperial Skeptics, Gregory Clay's, wrote this wonderful book um, called Imperial Skeptics, um, and he begins to explain that a lot of the um, discussion around opposition to the British Empire, it focuses on the work of John Hobson um, and the Boer War. Um, and so Clay's in this book, Imperial Skeptics, he argues that the impetus to 
the opposition to uh, and resistance to the empire, it emerges in the 1850s with the followers of August Colt. So for me personally, it, there would not have been a positivist movement that was so anti-imperialist without Congreve. Um, and even in France, the French positivists were much uh, less interested in condemning you know, French imperial operations. So, um, and I think he, in a way, even though his colleagues, his cohort of followers, um, which were called the Mumbo Jumbo Club in, at Oxford, it was um, Edward Spencer Beasley, Frederick Harrison, and um, John Henry Bridges, um, they were opposed to him being uh, promoting his Church of Humanity. Um, and so, but at the same time, I think that those, the religious aspect, the moral and ethical aspect, was what kind of gave him the backbone to speak out against the British Empire. So I, I would say that the impact is, is in his anti-imperialism, and that's reinforced by his religious principles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm really curious about, um, the, the kind of labor, um, component of, um, you know, Congress work. I think, you know, you talk about him being really, um, kind of this advocate for the rights of, um, working class laborers and, you know, being a staunch supporter of, um, various unionization efforts. And so I'm, you know, I was wondering, um, I, I don't think that I saw Marx's name um, come up in the book, but I was wondering, you know, these men were born in the same year in 1818. And so I was really curious about whether or not, you know, given, you know, his kind of commitments to, um, you know, the labor movement, um, were were Congreve and Marx ever in conversation with one another? Did he kind of come up? Did Marx come up in your research? Um, you know, given the fact that they were contemporaries, I'm just wondering um, if they had any influence on one another? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, I, I would say to, to a certain extent, I touch on that topic in my first book, Moralizing Space, a bit more. Um, but the key kind of works to, to look at for these types of relationships, so far as the scholarship is concerned, um, are the, uh, the writings of Royden Harrison, um, who was a quite prolific author on the labor movement and the relationship between positivism. And uh, Royden Harrison wrote this really fabulous book that's an inspiration to me called Before the Socialists. Um, and there he talks about how the positivists, as in Edward Spencer Beasley, uh, Frederick Harrison and Congreve were um, in a way influential to the rise of the first international. Uh, of which um, Karl Marx was the kind of secretary. And then he later went on and um, became the leader. Of, um, and in terms of what I came across with, with Marx and the positivists, the connection there was E.S. Beasley. Um, they were in correspondence and Marx felt that Beasley was um, the best of the positivists in the sense of his writings on history and um, in, in society. Um, he didn't, for some reason, Marx did not see Beasley as being um, so positivist as the other positivists in a sense. He, he loathed um, Kant and positivism generally, Marx did. Um, but in terms of, 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 you could say, Kant and Marx, 
Um, they were both reading um, the work of Etienne Cabet. Um, and he was, Cabet was more influential in France um, in the 1840s than any other thinker, I would, I would wager. Um, he had hundreds of thousands of subscribers to his uh, utopian project. He wrote about autocracy, uh, a dictatorship of sorts, um, as leading the way to swift social change. Um, and it seems to me that's where some of the um, intersection between the proposals of Marx and, and Kant are, are kind of similar um, in the sense that they wanted to both use dictatorships to transition to um, a, a new society. Um, but yeah, um, but also what I found was that more so the followers of Robert Owen were much more amenable to positivism in, in terms of becoming followers um, and, and, and being able to, to identify with what positivism was about. So in, in terms of also, I should say that um, Colt's biographer, Mary Pickering, she talks about the dictatorship of the proletariat um, specifically. Um, and she, she refers to Colt thinking about dictatorship as something that's obviously not a monarch. So she says it's similar to the idea of a president. Um, and I'm not entirely sure I you know, kind of completely agree with that. Um, but there was also a, a woman component in that narrative about social transformation that has largely been written out of the scholarship um, of positivism um, in that Colt was thinking that um, there would be a, a, a dictatorship um, and that the, the rise of a new society was dependent upon women giving over their role in public life, giving over their property, giving over their, uh, their demands for the suffrage and, and the like, um, and rearing these um, uh, morally uh, and, and socially oriented thinkers that were dedicated to um, the philosophy of positivism and by that, through that process, um, society would completely change. Um, and, and so Kant had some very strange, uh, you could say misogynist ideas about women, um, including a, um, one of his strategies um, in bringing in women to the movement was um, a utopia of the Virgin Mother. Um, which proposed that women would not have to have sexual relationships with men um, and they could have children whenever they wanted on their own independently, which in a way kind of makes them, um, according to some positivist scholars, reproduction officials um, that were confined to the home. So he had some fairly backward views, um, even though despite the notions of anti-imperialism. Mm, that's super interesting. And yeah, and even in his personal life, it sounds like he had some, you know, some issues going on with his wife and some of the women in his household as well, um, in, in terms of caretaking and whatnot. Um, so yes. I, I'm really curious about, um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, so I am a, a graduate student in sociology, and I had never heard of Congreve before reading um reading your book. And, you know, we, we study Comte a lot, um, especially in classical um, theory and sociology, but Congreve's name really never comes up. And so I'm really curious, 
um, why he's not more, um, you know, more significant figure, say in sociology or um, philosophy or political theory or religion or the study of empire. You know, why is he not, you know, in your estimation, why do you feel like he's not more of a central figure um, in these disciplines? And um, I guess part two of that question would be, what do you feel like his reputation um, and legacy are today? Good questions. Um, well, I, I guess I, could, I should say, you know, I, I haven't been through a sociology department or program, but I am surprised to hear that you would be assigned to read Kohl. And I'm assuming you read the core um, and not the system, right? Uh, right, the system exactly. Be positive, right, because right? that, that's the kind of the, the area in which he's beginning to um, define what sociology is, right? Um, but even prior to that, um, a lot of Kohn's ideas come from Henri de Saint-Simon, um, in fact. Um, in, in a way, what Kohn what did was he was reorganizing the ideas of Saint-Simon. Um, and so, um, but, but then again, in terms of, of why Congreve wouldn't be associated with sociology, I think specifically it is... It might be. It might have to do with the supposed um, objectivity and neutrality of scientific disciplines, which we're increasingly hearing is a, a sort of um, a bias in itself, um, in, in a way. Um, but I, I, I think too that you know maybe Congreve isn't part of that because sociology has become something else than what it used to be. Um, so that's one of the things that I kind of tackle in my first book, Moralizing Space, where I, I say, you know, these are the people who are the first sociologists according to Kohl's ideas about sociology. Um, and so, yeah, I include um, Congreve, who I kind of make out to be a kind of um, a historical sociologist. Um, and then I, I then turn to Frederick Harrison, um, who is a historian and a social surveyor. Um, and the thing that's, I think, important to, to, to take away from that is that Colt in the core, he talks about how sociology is founded on both uh, biology and history. Um, and so as I'm going through, you know, kind of looking at the different strands of sociology, um, you know, I increasingly see that parts of those are kind of being subdivided into different disciplinary aspects. Um, so applied sociology, for instance, um, that was advocated by Patrick Geddes, that becomes a kind of proto-town planning, so to speak. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of blurriness and overlap. And I think in a way, Perhaps Congreve um, is overlooked a lot because of his, you, you have to kind of wade through his religious um, sort of veneer over everything uh, in a way. Um, but I kind, of, I kind of wonder, you know, what kind of person he would have turned into if he had lived longer. Um, he clearly, I, I relay in the book, he didn't really like the idea of functioning as a church might in the conventional uh, notion of the word in terms of 
singing and genuflecting and incense and incantations and that sort of thing. I think somehow he had a different kind of definition for church um, in the sense of a a group of committed people um, uh, that were uh, united based off of common principles that had an ethical standpoint. Um, And so it would, I think, require us to start thinking about the word church and religion in in a different way, um, or it would require other disciplines to start thinking about church and religion in a different way for him to kind of um, be brought into the fold of other disciplines that he might have affected. Um, I would also say he he does frequently appear in works on the history of political thought. Um, that's where I've kind of seen most of his his um, his work appearing, uh, particularly also works on imperialism, such as um, uh, Bernard Porter's Critics of Empire. And it began to appear there, as I mentioned, it appears in Gregory Clay's Imperial Skeptics, um, and recent more recently in the book called Insurgent Empire. Um, as another kind of fantastic study on anti-imperialism. So in a way, I think he is studied within political thought, the history of political thought, but not as much, of course, as, you know, Hobbes and and, and the like. So Machiavelli, for instance. So um, in in a way, too, I think that's because he was, he was kind of in a way regurgitating a little bit, um, or maybe perhaps a lot, of, of what Comte said and did. Um, and so for, for that reason, people would probably just refer to to look at Colt's work, even though what Congreve was trying to do was to bring it into reality and act it out as a, a real thing. Right. So it was kind of like an applied philosophy, if you will. Yeah, I I really love this question that you just asked of, you know, kind of what kind of person would he have become had he lived longer? And so I'm wondering if you could actually, um, you know, speculate on that a little bit. I'm really curious about, you know, um, you know, if Congreve were alive even today, um, you know, how would he approach some of the issues that we're seeing in the world from a moral and political standpoint? Like I'm thinking about, you know, the, um, you know, ongoing forms of imperialism, like we see in Russia and Ukraine today, um, the contemporary refugee crisis, modern day slavery, like all of these um, you know, freedom of speech and the press. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about how you think Congreve would have responded to some of these contemporary issues today if he were still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think assuming that he did not um, or he would not have given up on the positivist project, some people that he um, he oversaw into being part of the positivist priesthood like Malcolm Quinn um, who was the head of the Newcastle Church of Humanity, um, Quinn went off and returned to Catholicism. Um, and I don't really think that Congreve would have done that. Um, I do think that he would be um, very opposed to Russian intervention. I think that he would probably rely on his old trope, which is um, something that he he kind of had this way of always calling for a Western guardianship of nations, um, you know, which would be, um, he, he's referred to these five great Western powers at the time, which if I can recall was uh, something like France, uh, Spain, Germany, um, and, and, and the like. And, and then, and then saying, well, we need to create this kind of protectorship um, and, and to, 
he would even maybe even call for intervention. Um, he was calling for intervention during the Franco-Prussian War, for instance. He was attempting to rally um, uh, British workers to go off and, and defend um, Paris from the roar of the Russian guns, um, or Prussian guns, I should say. Um, so I think he he's always going to be a defender, or he would always be a defender of the small state, um, especially being dominated over by a larger state. Um, that was a key kind of positivist um, principle. They weren't necessarily anti-warfare. Um, they mostly preferred Pacific relations between different nation states. Um, and they preferred to see the devolution of nation states into small city states. Um, and that was a way that they were trying to guarantee, you know, everything, you know, everything. There was a kind of spatial and, and military equality amongst all of these different states. Um, but yeah, I, I would say he would, he would, I think he would be upset that the world has not transformed into hundreds of city states. Um, I think he would be, again, rallying on, he'd probably be on Twitter or something like that condemning um, Russia's uh, invasion. Um, I think he would still be an advocate for freedom of speech. Um, I'm not entirely sure what he would think about, uh, about the feminist movement in particular. Um, I don't think he would particularly like it. Um, I don't think he would, um, I don't really know what he would necessarily say about, um, about critical race theory and things like that. Um, I, I think that would be interesting. And it, but I guess the kind of the main problem is, right, that we're kind of in this post-structuralist age. So everything that he was about was this meta-narrative of science saving humanity. And then I think if he were to reappear suddenly, um, he would he may he may be at a loss just to realize, you know, science caused to, you know, massive amount of destruction and world wars. Um, so would he be still firm believer in science is something to be, you know, left to wonder, I think. I like that. Yeah. I, yeah. I like that idea of kind of the meta narrative and reflecting back on what his impact actually could have been and, you know, how he would have revised his thinking. Um, so fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, so I have one final question for you, um, which is, you know, kind of moving beyond the book, but, you know, you've, um, give us a little bit of insight into some prior work that you've done, like moralizing space. Um, but I'm sure all of your new fans are really curious to know what your next project is. Like, are you um, currently working on a, a new book project or uh, a new article, a new biography by any chance? Just really curious about what your uh, next project or set of projects might be. Right. I do have um, more publishing work right now going on than I'd probably ever have. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, currently, I am working on an article for the Rutledge Critical Companion to Race and Architecture, um, and that's linked to a design studio that I taught um, after um, the events of the summer of 2020. Um, so it's about that studio, and it's about what I referred to as a museum of American violence, as these interventions um, to, to kind of reawaken the uh, American conscience on race relations. Um, I also have a chapter called uh, tentatively a true organ of humanity on the patriarchal architecture of positivist regionalism in Victorian Britain. Um, and that's gonna be in the region uh, book 
for the series Critiques, Critical Studies in Architectural Humanities. Um, I was invited to write the entry on positivism for the Oxford Handbook of American and British 19th century women philosophers. Um, I'm also editing a book called Understanding Site and Design Pedagogy um, with a fellow uh, a colleague here at Ball State, Sean Burns. And that's about what we think about site whenever we're designing things. And most, uh, my most biggest project right now um, is called Positivism and the Origins of Feminism, 19th Century British Women Philosophers. So that is a study um, that I'm working on. I have a contract through Manchester University Press. Um, and it's an intellectual history of proto-feminist uh, or feminist, uh, depending on how you stand on the word, uh, thinkers who um, engaged with, with Kantian positivism. And so it's a collection of chapter-length case studies um, in which I argue that uh, these women employed Kantian positivism to breach the male-dominated domain of Victorian public life. Um, so I'm uh, just beginning uh, that study more intensively, um, and I have kind of a working model that I'm uh, developing for, um, for the project that I'm, I'm just really excited about. So that's kind of where I am at the moment. Uh, that's that's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like you really do have your hands full and I'm really excited to see uh, the fruits of all your labor. So um, thank you so much for this truly wonderful conversation, Dr. Wilson. Um, this has been a conversation with Dr. Matthew Wilson about his book, Richard Congreve, Positive Politics, the Victorian Press and the British Empire. I'm Chrisa Pugh of Harvard University, and this has been an episode of New Books and Biography a channel on the New, Book, New Books Network. Thank you for listening.